On episode 241, I'm interviewing Lade Twak, experienced UX researcher for many large companies, including Google. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Lade Tawak, an experienced UX researcher consultant for many of the top brands, including Google. Lade, thanks very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Hi, Jamin. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start out with it before we get into the meat of our conversation with providing our listeners some context of who you are, you know, where you're based, and how you wound up in user experience research. I'm based in Lagos, Nigeria. There are not a lot of UX researchers here. So I was studying psychology in the University of Lagos. And as a student, I had a lot of time on my hands and my school is based in a major city where there's a tech hub and tech hub was really close to my school. So I used to just go there and go for all the meetups I could find because I had nothing else to do. And so I discovered uh, Usable, which was UX Lagos at the time, a design meetup that happened every month. And so I just attended because I was more interested. I had tried software develop, um, front-end development. So I um, learned HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript on Codecademy because I really wanted to work in tech. That was like my major goal. And so I didn't really enjoy that. So I really, I enjoyed the meetups and topics and everything. And so an opportunity came up in the company where the meetup was hosted for a UX researcher, their first UX researcher, and they wanted somebody with a psychology background. And so I sent in my CV, had an interview, and voila. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was magical, right? I mean, there's there's a lot to that. I, you know, user experience meetups are becoming more and more common. It's interesting to see how you know they're playing out globally. Of course, yourself in Nigeria is is really interesting. Are you seeing meetups as something that is has they been around a lot for a long time inside of the, our industry, or is it more of a new phenomenon? So I can't say for like all over the world, but as far as I can tell, there were a lot of meetups in these parts. Usable is about five years old. And in that time, a lot more have come up for developers, designers, mostly for developers, I think. I think at most of the meetups for developers or entrepreneurs yeah. and business owners. And there was not like a lot being done about designers but not, and other people who are involved in tech and creating products and selling those products. But now there are a lot more meetups. There are digital marketing meetups, there are content meetups, there are Oh, so I also started this, not, it's not really huge, it's just like a small quarterly meetup for UX researchers. So more meetups, as the industry here grows and more roles come up and people are starting to pay attention to the other things involved, 
more meetups are coming up and people are doing meeting people offline because most of the which is a major challenge I have faced here is that there are not a lot of people for me to look to for guidance or advice. Most of the help I get is from international Slack communities and on Twitter and basically online. But so really, now there's more of that presence here. Yeah, and, and on that topic, what is what is your Twitter handle? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I'll just have to spell it. Okay, okay. I tell you what, we'll do this. You, we will link to your Twitter handle af, uh, inside of the show notes. I know there's a lot of people that are going to want to connect with you. So this is interesting, like sort of that that blur between physical or or versus virtual, right? I recently was at Google's campus in conjunction with the AMA moderating a panel and out of San Francisco. And in that panel, it was you make a lot of human connections, right? So in person. And then it's interesting how you see that evolution in a digital framework, like those relationships really blossom. So I think that meetups play an important role. The problem with meetups, especially if you're not in a major metropolitan area, is you know you have very small or non-existent communities. So tapping into those and finding those individuals can be really hard. But but that's where if you like put the effort in, you know, just starting it, eventually you will build that community. It just takes a little, you have to have patience. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because I remember when I, I started going to Usable like about two months after it had started and we were barely 20 people. But now a Usable Meetup averages are like 80 people per Meetup. And it's on a work day in... A very traffic ridden right. city so that's like a lot of people and i'm pretty sure if it was and this is feedback that we get because now i'm part of the organizers of usable yay <laughs> <laughs> so and the feedback that we get often is that um oh it's because it's on thursday i can't come because I, I work on the island i live on the mainland and there's like the lagos has an island part and a mainland part and there's like so much traffic and people don't like to do that journey so even for my little UX researcher hangout that I just started, and it's every quarter, the first meetup were about six people, and the last one were about 15 people, and this is all this year. So as people become more aware and people become more interested, the numbers increase, people show up more, and then it keeps growing that way. Yeah. But then again, there's the concern of where you live, which is why like, I really love online spaces. Because if there were no international Slack groups, I wouldn't have made a lot of the connections that I have made so yeah. far. Yeah, the, I mean, activity inside of Slack for your specific discipline is, is really, really important whether it's market research or UX. You know, it used to be the case that we relied on message boards as a way for us to be able to connect. And that still is being used today. But the majority of the conversations are now having, happening in, you know, whether it's Google groups or Slack communities. It is really neat to see the, I'm a member of a couple uh, research operations Slack community and then a Bay Area user experience Slack. And it's interesting how there's so much activity, you know, there, whether it's needs or mentorship or, you know, one personal post. Recently, we had crowdsourced basically among the group of the 100 most common user experience terms and then we created a definition against those terms, which is, you know, a foundational piece of work when you think about that, because that's something that we can then, as, you know, 
more broadly start pushing and just kind of the way that we talk about our disciplines. So let's talk a little bit about user experience research and some context for yourself. My background's in primary market research. User experience research, you know, as a, as a job function when I started my career really didn't exist, not in its current framework anyway. It's because I'm old. But, <laughs> but, you know, you've really seen over the last, I want to say, six to seven years, a massive investment in organizations against the user experience researcher job function. And it sits, and that job function sits outside of market research, which again, I think is, is really, is really interesting. So it would be helpful for us, the audience, myself included, if you would just spend a little bit of time talking about what the role is of user experience researchers um, in a modern brand. So I think I would mostly refer to, I think, Jared's polls on maturity, on UX maturity. And then that's in terms of like the role that the UX researcher plays. Because in, and it depends on the awareness that they have, the company has, about what UX research really is. Because for some people, UX research is just usability testing or it's just service. And they don't think about like the the other things that exist, ethnography, field research, diary studies, and all those other things. And I'm, I'm going to mostly speak from my perspective being here in Nigeria. I can't stay for <laughs> other places. But um, when I first started, most people, and myself included, understood UX research as usability studies, and interviews and focus groups mostly that's what most people did and then as i connected with people in other slack groups i mean like 25 slack groups <laughs> as i connected with all these people i started to learn more and started to see beyond those three and in my first job as from when i started to when by the time i had finished when I started, I only knew three methods, but by the time I finished, because of all these other groups, I was work, working with about five or six different methods. And then moving to another company, being able to do more field work was a different perspective. So I will say that it really just depends on, in terms of the role, there's a huge requirement where you as a researcher have to be the driving force in terms of what you do. Because most people, especially in this side, are just starting to have an understanding of what UX research is and why it's important and why they should do it and when they should do it. So it's usually, it's very hard to find mentorship. So it's really up to you to push for the breath that you would like to work with. And then in terms of where UX research sits in teams, I mean, different companies have it in different places. So in some of the Slack groups, I mean, this, conversa and this conversation has come up so many times. And people, some people say that they sit, some companies have UX researchers, UX researchers sit with different product teams, but that's on, you can only do that when you have enough researchers. If you have 10 products and you have only one researcher, you have to have the researcher like center servicing the other team. So in my first job, I was working at a kind of, it was kind of a consultancy that had an incubator and an accelerator. So I was on a design team that was servicing the startups in the incubator and the accelerator, as well as external clients and for any projects that the company was collaborating with other people to create. So that was one structure. And then it was the same way in my next full-time job where I, my design team combined brand and 
brand design, product design, UX design. So there were about um, 12 or 13 of us servicing all the product teams. So um, it depends on the, again, the company and their existing structure. But most of the companies that I know here put UX, some, there's not always a UX research role. Usually the designer does it and it's usually usability testing or interviews. But it will usually be situated in a central team that services kind of like a, like an internal consultancy team that services the rest of the other team. It's very rare that you have a researcher per product or per team. Very, very, I don't think that it would exist here as far as I know. Yeah, and that's centric to maybe the geography or the types of companies, right? So like there's a number of, you know, really all the the large companies that are in the technology field at this point have dedicated user experience researchers in-house, usually sitting next to product. I'm really interested though in this evolution of, you know, of your, I'll call it like tools in your toolbox, you know, user experience researcher tools that you develop or learned about and then developed through the connections you made in Slack channels. Like, can you describe one of your favorite ones that you, tools or skills that you acquired and then have been using? Definitely ethnography, field research. So I think mostly because I didn't have the, as I was just starting out then, and I was still trying to find my footing. And so because it was kind of easy for me to transition from doing psychology research to doing UX research because the methods are pretty in some ways similar and in terms of like in terms of how do you facilitate a session or facilitate a focus group because we had all the practical sessions in school we would do practice counseling sessions and practice focus group sessions so those things were able to easily able to translate and I guess that's why it was easy for me to hold on to those three first the interview focus group and the music test so it was like very easy transition and those ones were the ones that the people I worked with were familiar with and so it was easy to start with that and as somebody who was just starting out nearly in the whole field not just at my job it was kind of difficult for me to see where and how to introduce new methods so it was only later on that I was able to do that but the one I'm most excited about is ethnography and this I was able to really explore on a different job. I went to a different country, Kenya, to do field research on for the financial services company I was working for at the time. And it was a very interesting project because I was leading the whole thing from planning to analysis and it involved the people in the Kenya office and the Nigeria office. And it was very interesting again because when we got there, we realized that we hadn't planned for translators for when we went to the outskirts of town because Swahili is spoken more in those areas than in the central business district. Most of the research was in the business district because we were, we were talking to banks and telecommunication companies. So we didn't have the language problem until we went outside. Thankfully, we had people on the team who spoke Swahili, and so they served as translators for the session. Such a, that's such a terrifying 
you know, situation where you're actually in the field, the client wants to move from a, you know, metropolitan into um, rural areas, and then you have this whole like cultural slash language transition that also occurs. You know, there's so much effort that goes into the actual operations of research and, you know, having to pull those audibles. It's actually a big part of, I think, a successful researcher is their ability to be crafty with and nimble while they're actually in field to make sure they get the right people with, you know, the points of view that are important. Yeah, I agree with that. So, like, I feel a lot of time you plan research and you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and then there's always something that just surprises you that you didn't remember to plan for or that just comes up in the middle of everything and then you have to just be really quick and think of some things to happens all the time yeah it's or you find out that you recruited the wrong participant in the middle of the session like <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. We used to, I've seen that so many times. One time I was doing a project with, these were in-depth interviews, and one project was for a, I'm trying to think of how I can say it without disclosing too much, but it was basically in a medical field. And so this physician who had been vetted and was an expert in this particular field came in and you know did the interview and everything was great. And then, I'm not kidding, it was like eight hours later, so that was a morning, this is the evening session and it was the same guy came in for a different project but in the side of a different field of study and i was just terrified because i'm like hey how did this happen you got to figure it out you know and that's unfortunately we had double recruited but it was not my favorite moment anyway um okay so you know you're a recent grad i think you graduated in 2018 so congratulations on that <laughs> thank you for so nigeria being nigeria so people in the academic staff of universities go strike and then you're in school longer than you should be. But I actually finished my exams 2017. I'm in class of 2017. Okay. But then we didn't graduate until 2018. <laughs> well, I mean, at least you have a legitimate reason. I think in the U.S. it's prolonged just because of the beer consumption. But that might be a different <laughs> that might be more fun, different podcast. Diversity is a in design specifically is this growing movement. And I'm, I mean, we're seeing diversity across the board, whether it's like startup founders or board of directors or C-level executives or management or et cetera, et cetera. But we know that diversity is important. What are some advantages from your perspective that diversity gives organizations? So um, I think that it definitely gives you, in terms of just even perspective, by like how do people experience the world and especially if you're building a product if you're a product even if you're offering a service like the people who are using your product or service are very diverse so your team should reflect that because you then miss things if you don't do that i was recently watching a ted talk by i can't remember her name now but she has a condition I don't know what the word, the, I don't know if this is politically correct, but I think it's called dwarfism. And she was talking about how she can't like access anything, especially when she travels. She needs help when she travels and uses airports because like nobody designed airports for people right. that experience this. And even with accessible bathrooms are not designed for people right. with her condition. So... It's very easy to say you can walk in people's shoes, 
but you really 100% can't. You always need somebody with that perspective because it's very different to, to have a lived experience than to watch somebody's lived experience or to hear about somebody's lived experience. It's right. very different from actually being there and living that life. So having people diverse, even culturally, uh, abilities, all in many different ways, helps you create products that actually work for everybody. So also, there was a time about two years ago, I think, where Apple released their health thing on their apps, mm-hmm. but it didn't track cycles. Interesting. And women use, like, how do you have a health thing that doesn't track menstrual cycles? Which is like, people who... Right. <laughs> so like, having, if, I'm not, I don't know what their team was made up of, but then, it, and that also goes to that, it goes beyond like having those people in the room. It also, do you, do they actually have a voice when they're in the room? So I imagine maybe there was somebody there who could have said something, but maybe it felt like they couldn't say something. So it, just, it goes beyond just like having people in the room. Mm. Do they know that they can voice, they can use their voices or are they just in the room because they feel like, oh, let's put them in the room so people won't say we don't have a diverse team. How interesting. It, it's like almost like an authentic seat at the table as opposed to more of a ceremonial seat at the table. Yeah. And, you know, again, this is such a, I don't, I hate jumping on this bandwagon, but I feel like it's such an important point. What I mean by, and let me clarify what my point is there. Like it's, it's been an obvious hole inside of corporate America and at a global level as well that, you know, now all of a sudden we're seeking or the industries are seeking people to fill these roles to offer the diverse perspectives and they're actually having challenges finding the right, you know, finding the right populations that can, you know, create the level of diversity. And so one of the things that I found that's really interesting is successful companies, that is ones that are putting real effort towards this, they're actually recruiting up chain. So they're investing at the college level and even in some cases at the high school level so that they can get good socioeconomic diversity funneled through the educational system so that when they do graduate, there is a pool of people that they can, you know, they can subsequently hire as opposed to it being more of an afterthought of, oh, wow, I need a salesperson right now, or I need a product person right now. And, you know, these are the first 100 applicants and just combing through the sea of the non-diverse segments, which I represent. <laughs> so another thing that just came to mind now was like, so here in Nigeria, a lot of banks don't have um, wheelchair ramps. And it's just like, if you had somebody who is a wheelchair in your bank, working in your bank, you would know that, oh, we should design our bank branches with wheelchair ramps. It's like one example of how, even because you see people on wheelchairs every day, but you don't think that, oh, maybe they also use the bank. Yeah, but no, when you're you right. Somebody, <laughs> when you have somebody who works in the bank, then you see that, oh, yeah, we should have this. Why don't we have this? I have a good friend of mine, Mark Malabon, and he's paralyzed from the waist down, and he's a programmer for Decipher, which is a survey platform. Anyway, he, I remember, you know, we moved the, the company into a new building, and it was compliant with the you know building codes 
but it actually the overall accessibility was just not designed or optimal for people in wheelchairs. So, you know, because of that relationship, there was just no question about it, right? It had to, things had to be designed in a way that, you know, it's like my co-founder, Matt Tim, he, he says, he goes, what if it was your kid? That's literally how his question. <laughs> so when, when he actually, he comes out of the whole accessibility side of things. He's, anyway, it's the longer story. But yeah, you know, designing workspaces for blind people is, is his, um, you know, one of his last startups. So it is interesting how you can forget about, it's, it's almost like, it's not intentional. It's just, it's just the way we're wired as humans. You know, if we're not encountering that challenge, our assertion is that challenge doesn't exist or we forget about it. Right. And so that, that's where I think the strength of diversity is. If you can connect your, you know, product to everybody, not just, you know, the people that look like you, then you offer a much broader whole product to the marketplace, which the benefit of that is obviously breadth and reach. So, you know, it's more meaningful and it's hitting a wider audience, which is a great competitive moat if you want to think about from a financial perspective. All right, so in 2018, we're just going to kick this horse a little bit more. Sorry about my colloquialism. 2018, you wrote a Medium article titled Creating a Community for Women in Design. And then you introduced She Designs. Tell us a little bit about She Designs and, you know, what your kind of what the problem was and, and what you're hoping to solve there. So I'm usable, actually, is what led me to She Design. So I noticed that at the meetups, we have like sometimes 100 people, sometimes 80 people. And then in the whole crowd, we have maybe five women, six. And so I just felt like, is I don't think is that they're not women designers. Maybe because of the timing, maybe we're not reaching where they are. I didn't know what to do. And so I decided to talk to a couple of people that I knew and to see what was really like, is it that they're not not enough women? If that's the issue, how can we get more women? Is that they're women but we don't know where they are, how can we find them? Is it that they're women but they don't feel like they're experience enough to come out and talk or to meet people or whatever like what really is the issue so i put out a tweet um asking for women designers in nigeria and so i spoke to i did a couple of i user researched <laughs> <laughs> so i did um i had conversations with all of with like not all of them because it was like a lot of people who filled the form with about 10 15 of them and then I had another kind of like focus group in the beginning of last year. Yeah, last year, beginning of last year. So the form and tweet went out in like 2017, the like middle of 2017. And so January 2018, I think, I had like a focus group. About four people came. And so from there, I drew up what, we drew up like what she designed will be about and what it will be what the core of the group will be and so because I was so I didn't want to just do another meetup right because there are like lots of meetups so I wanted it to actually like be valuable beyond just meetups are valuable definitely because like I got my start from going to meetups so but I wanted it to be more and to actually provide value and to be like what's the difference between this and any other meetup and so we did our first event the May of that year. And so we decided that the goals for she designs would be the threefold. 
One is to train people, to train women <laughs> on the various aspects of design. So we're looking beyond visual design, um, UX, research, content, everything that goes into creating products. And because of that, we're starting to think of maybe including products management, but that's like something that we're thinking about. But for now, the focus is um, graph, um, visual design, UX design, uh, research, and content. And then that's one. The second one is to, for people to collaborate. So we wanted to create a space for women designers to collaborate, create things, work on projects, and all of that. And then the third one was to help people develop, women to develop their quote-unquote soft skills. So um, things like public speaking, encourage more women to speak publicly, write about the work that they're doing, but all those kinds of things so that we have well-rounded designers, right? Because a lot of designers can create, but they can't talk about their work. They can't speak in public. Right. So just to cover all the bases, so it's functioning as a obviously an aware uh, opportunity awareness, but then subsequently you know growth in terms of like uh, mentorship and training. Are there many workshops at a paid level um, locally? In general, I don't know of that many paid workshops. Isabel recently started doing workshops. Some are paid, some are free. Um, before she designs, we tried to do a course based off of the ideal HCD framework. But then we're, uh, we've done it like three times now. We've tried to do it three times. And we each time we learn something new. So the first time, the issue was that it was too long. It was supposed to run for six weeks. And it was too long. People were dropping off. Attention span wasn't there. And then the second time, it was that people were, they had other jobs, like they had full-time jobs. And so they didn't have time to commit and then the third time yeah so people weren't following the schedule because again we're trying to check in call do weekly calls do weekly check-ins send emails but people weren't responding so we were back to the drawing board trying to figure out how to actually make it work so that it's beneficial to everybody because we put a lot of time and effort into it and it wasn't getting the desired results another thing i'm thinking of that we're trying to do is to something I've noticed about designers in general is that most people don't really know how to collaborate. They don't know how to work with other people, especially developers. So like designers are in their little corner and the developers are in their own corner. So we're trying to do a collaboration with organizations that teach women to code so that we can sort of simulate like working like a real work environment where you're not just designing in your corner yard, um, working with other people on a team. And which is why our challenges are usually team-based because we want people to be able to collaborate and be able to work with other people when creating. So they're not just, because that's in, when you're working, you're probably not just going to, to sit down by yourself and come up with something. Right. You're probably going to work with somebody else. So we're trying to make that, make it as realistic as possible, as reflective of real life as possible. Yeah. And not just, I think that's that's a really important point, right? Is you've got to not just cultivate or develop the skills of research, but you also have to 
successfully figure out and navigate the personal interactions, the, you know, the how you and when you engage with people so that projects are ultimately successful. Because we can, we can do the absolute most brilliant research in the world, but if we haven't built the relationships and figured out how to collaborate with our customers internally, then it really doesn't matter. That ability is, is probably as big or bigger than you know, the other side of the equation, but you really have to have both. Yeah. My last question, which I has turned into one of my favorites, what is your personal motto? Mm. So I mean <laughs> I was hoping you would ask me because I could I don't think I have a personal motto because I I always feel like whatever I'm thinking depends on the context I'm in and where my life is at and like in that particular moment. But I think hmm. <laughs> so in terms of work I would say my personal motto in terms of work is do great work do interesting things and then talk about it because I don't believe in the whole silence genius work, working away and everybody acknowledges your genius because you're such a genius <laughs> I feel like you have to talk about what you do and show people that you actually know so it's not just talk, but like do great work yeah. and then and talk about it. it. Exactly. That's for work. Um, but then in, I think my general life motto is just have fun. <laughs> <laughs> life is long. Life can be long and life can be short. But whatever it is, have fun. Like with whatever you're doing. Perfect. My guest today has been Lottie Tawak, UX researcher extraordinaire. I'm very honored to have you on the podcast today, Lottie. Thank you so much for joining me. So glad to have done this. Thank you. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, please take time, screen capture, share it on social media. If you tag us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.